Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a diplomatic row has broken out in Kenya over the forcible deportation of dozens of both Chinese and Taiwanese alleged criminals, alleged suspects, and we're going to put the word alleged out there quite a bit because we really don't know what's been going on. But what we do know is that dozens of, uh, of Taiwanese were forced onto a plane from Nairobi, uh, taken out of a jail cell, and put onto a plane bound for China. Now, the reason why this is so controversial is because for a lot of people who may not be familiar, Taiwan is technically not a part of China. Now, what we're going to do for the purposes of this discussion, because I know this is a very highly charged issue, particularly among Chinese and Taiwanese, we are going to abide by the United Nations standards for Taiwan, which is that it is not technically a part of China. It is an observer. It is a nation, but it is not an independent country. And I know this is a, a technicality for a lot of our non-Chinese listeners. But before we start getting a lot of hate mail from our Chinese listeners, we will just for this purpose of this discussion kind of keep it as a separate entity, even though it's in high high dispute. So, Kobus, why don't you bring us up to date a little bit on what happened uh, in early April when dozens of Chinese and Taiwanese alleged cybercrime and kind of telecom fraudsters were bound up and forced on a plane back to China? Okay, this story became, began back in November um, last year, in 2014 actually. Um, when uh, a group of of um, Chinese and Taiwanese nationals were arrested in in Kenya under charges that they are that they are running um, telephone fraud schemes, so um, you know, kind of they were they were accused of essentially tricking people into into paying you know kind of money over to them. Um, so they were in in custody for a while in Kenya, and the trial was kind of running. Um, and then in um, earlier earlier this month, um, a whole bunch of them um, were were found innocent. Um, oh, sorry, I'm 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 missing up the story. Um, were they found innocent or were yes, they, they were acquitted? They were acquitted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, they were okay. acquitted. Um, sorry, can I pick that up? Yep. Um, so earlier earlier this month, um, a whole bunch of them were acquitted, and then they were supposed to then return. The Taiwanese were supposed to return to Taiwan. Um, the thing is, they were then kept in custody and then f- allegedly f- forcibly taken to China. Um, and now it's it's a massive diplomatic row. The the Taiwanese um, authorities are saying that they've been abducted. Um, the Chinese authorities say a that they have jurisdiction over them because they don't you know, because they see Taiwan as a province of China, but also that they are they they will be taken to China to be put on trial because they are accused of running transnational kind of fraud schemes targeting mainland Chinese. Uh, people. There we go. So, so that's a very important point to bring up here so that people understand who exactly they were targeting and why the Chinese are so angry about this. And what they're alleging is the fact that these multinational cybercrime and telecom fraud groups or syndicates, gangsters, however you want to kind of frame it, are working from places like Kenya uh, and even in Asia to basically defraud innocent Chinese consumers uh, much, very much in the same way that Nigerians have long been accused of doing the same thing by sending phishing emails and, you know, my cousin was arrested, I need your help kind of emails, please send $10 million. 
Uh, and that's what they're alleging is going on. And they're saying that it's gotten to the point of such severity that they had to take action. Now, Eric, this, this is this is not the first of this kind of transnational arrest happening, you know, and and it's and it it's not only happening in the context of crime; it's also happened in in other political contexts. Um, so, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and unpack like how this fits in in the China Taiwan relationship. Okay, so we'll we'll kind of take that into two pieces. One is the China Taiwan relationship, and I think for a lot of our listeners who again don't follow this issue in particular. Taiwan, by the Chinese definition, is a breakaway province from the Chinese uh, Communist Revolution that was in 1949. The two sides have actually not come to peace since 1949. China believes that it is the rightful ruler of all of Taiwan and China. Taiwan, for its part, has long maintained, and that's still their official policy, that they are, they are the rightful ruler of China uh, and the rightful kind of government of China. Of course, that is just semantics from the Cold War and from a long time ago, but it is a highly, highly contentious issue in both China and Taiwan across what they the called the Taiwan Straits, which is the small sliver of water that divides the two. And so China is, uh, you know, looks at Taiwan as what I call their Jerusalem. And that is, there is really nothing more important in Chinese foreign policy uh, than, than the reunification of China with Taiwan. And what I mean by that is that the Chinese consider this a paramount issue. And that goes back into the depths of Chinese history for thousands and thousands of years that the periphery of the border is so important. And when the borders kind of start to peel away, whether it's in Tibet or Xinjiang or Taiwan, then the central government or the emperor during the imperial times is weak. And so there's this kind of instinct within Chinese history that says the periphery of China must be strong and unified. And Taiwan has always sat out there as this exception to that in the modern era. Now, Taiwan, for And in part, Africa, sorry to interrupt you, and in, in, um, just to pick up from that, in Africa, the this has underlain Chinese foreign policy in Africa. So for a all long of the, time. You know, the kind of in, for a long time. Like, like, if you have, as an African country, have relationships with China, you cannot have a relationship with Taiwan. And that's and, something... You know, kind of, and and we, what we recently saw, in, for example, in the case of Gambia, was that, you know, kind of Gambia switched from the one to the other um, and actually switched at, a, at an awkward time because for a little while, China and Taiwan had been ratcheting down the tension around this issue. That's and right. now the tension seems to be ratcheting back up again. And frankly, that issue in Africa is now largely moot because there's, there, I think, Sao Tome and Principe are, you know, are one of the last holdouts. Uh, and there's yeah, maybe, Burkina Faso and Swaziland. And Swaziland, which, you know, for the most part is insignificant. And, and this is, you know, so that issue has been solved. So now we're going into a different phase of the tensions that involve Africa. But I think it's important to answer the second part of your question, which is about how this incident in Kenya fits into a broader global context of renditions and international law enforcement by the Chinese that's happened all over the world uh, over the past, say, 12 to 18 months. And this is definitely something that has come in with the Xi Jinping administration. This was not something that we saw in the Hu Jintao or the Jiang Zemin administration. So it's relatively a new phenomena. Let me kind of break down four or five different categories of what's going on in different countries. Think about this. In 2014 alone, China arrested 288 suspects accused of what they call of financial crimes, which is corruption. 
uh, in 56 different countries. And this was part of an operation they called Operation Fox Hunt, where they went all over the world to pursue people who they said were corrupt. And this is very much part of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive, the same anti-corruption drive that netted none other than Sam Pa, who was the legendary China-Africa dealmaker. But not only is it corruption, there's also ideological issues that they're going after, uh, most notably in Hong Kong, which Hong Kong, even though it's technically a part of China, it has a separate uh, in legal system and it has autonomy from the mainland for 50 years after the handover from, from Britain when it was a colony. Uh, so in some ways, there's been this sense of... Well, Hong Kong was, a, was a, 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 a little bastion of freedom of press, a legal system that was independent of the mainland. But in the past year, five Chinese booksellers who were uh, selling controversial books that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party, they mysteriously disappeared for long periods of time. Uh, senior corporate executives in Hong Kong have suddenly just disappeared. Uh, there was one that, sh uh, that was most interesting was Gui Minhai, who was taken from his residence in Thailand. He was a bookseller who fled Hong Kong, and he went to the resort town of Pattaya, and then suddenly he disappeared and then showed up on Chinese national television doing a televised confession. And these televised confessions are very interesting because it's a tactic that the Chinese have used for a very long time, uh, and that goes back uh, you know, all the way into the Cultural Revolution when they did public confessions and public shamings. And what's interesting about this latest crackdown is that it's not only affecting Chinese. For the first time that we've seen, that I've seen in following China for 25 years, uh, foreigners are now also being swept up into this. On January 3rd of this year, uh, Swedish Peter Dahlin was arrested. And again, he's a white Swede. And this is a very important distinction to make because in the past, the Chinese have often gone after ethnic Chinese even if they had dual citizenship or if they were entirely foreign but were working in China, they would oftentimes grab them up. But they never really took white foreigners or non-ethnic Chinese foreigners and treated them this way. He was detained on suspicion of endangering state security because of the work that he did with the Chinese Urgent Action Working Group, which is uh, also known as China Action, which is an organization that trains and supports Chinese lawyers. Uh, he was also forced to do a television confession, and so that's very interesting. And then there are these, uh, these, you know, it's not really a rendition, but these, the way they do enforcement in the United States. And this comes to me from a, a well-placed source inside the Homeland Security uh, Service in the United States in Los Angeles, and he explained to me what they're doing in in there. Chinese security officials will not, are not able to do the kind of enforcement action that they did in Kenya, where you actually have Chinese security, you have a plane, and you can forcibly you know, rendition or deport people. The United States would never tolerate that. So instead, what he explained to me that what happens is that Chinese security services in undercover will show up at the doorstep of someone they suspect of corruption for the most part. And these are people who have been buying homes or they've kind of fled China with all their money and they've set up in the United States thinking that they were outside the reach of Chinese law enforcement. A knock comes on the door at seven or eight in the morning. They answer and they say, you know, good afternoon, Mr. Wang. Uh, you know, I understand that you have, you know, three relatives that are back in China. I understand you have a daughter in an American university at say Harvard or Columbia. Um, if you don't get on the plane tomorrow for this ticket that I'm giving you, uh, one by one, they will start to disappear. And mm. it is absolutely chilling how they are doing this. Now, again, yeah. I haven't been able to independently verify this, 
but this does come from a highly placed source. So it shows you how they're using different methods in different parts of the world to persuade, arrest, detain, deport, rendition, however you want to call it, to get people to understand that the long arm of Chinese law is now uh, basically unlimited. And so I think yes, that's really interesting. Yes, and it's also notable, to, notable to, to add to that that two of these Taiwanese people who have been, you know, kind of like taken to China in, uh, as part of this Kenya scandal have now appeared on, on state TV in China reading confessions. Reading confessions, um, which most people and, believe are you know, not. Kind of, and uh, kind of apologizing for defrauding mainland Chinese citizens, you know, kind of stuff. So it is, it is kind of like playing into this this narrative that the Chinese authorities have been have been putting out around this issue that they won't get um, that they won't be prosecuted if if they get sent back to Taiwan. And that is really the most important issue here. The Chinese authorities have come out and said very clearly why they intervened in Kenya and why they forcibly deported these people and they wanted them back in China and not letting them go back to Taiwan. It's because they don't believe that the Chinese, or that, I'm sorry, the Taiwanese will take necessary action. Let's take a listen now uh, to An Fang Shan, who's the official spokesman of the Chinese State Council Taiwan Affairs Office, and he explains what motivated Beijing to forcibly send the suspects to China and not Taiwan. Because the Chinese mainland and Taiwan handle criminal suspects separately, a lot of repeat offenders from the Taiwan side involved in telecommunications fraud have not received their due punishment, and the money cannot be retrieved. There were also several suspects released once they were returned to Taiwan. Some of them started the criminal activities again overseas. The public of the Chinese mainland has voiced opposition and called to crack down on those criminal suspects and get their money back. And this part of the story became even more important just this past week. On April 17th, this dispute intensified when a group of 20 Taiwanese from another suspected cyber and telecom fraud ring, really the same thing as what we saw in Kenya, was deported back to Taiwan from Malaysia. And then upon their arrival in Taipei, they were released. Uh, the police in Taiwan said the decision was based on a lack of evidence and an absence of arrest warrants. So again, Kobus, what's happening in Kenya is really part of a much bigger context that I think is very important for people to understand. And it's happening in Malaysia, in Kenya, in other places. And this question of the cyber fraud is so critical because really the Chinese feel that their people are being taken advantage of. Yes, um, so it's you know it's a nested set of super complicated issues because the Taiwan-China rivalry is playing out in Kenya now, you know, in this crazy way, but at the same time there's a, there's a much wider context of Chinese intervention in lots of different other countries, you know, kind of going after Chinese and non-Chinese people in other in other countries, and in that sense. You know, kind of that—that that is worrying in relation to, to you know, kind of to possible repression or whatever, kind of other other kind of like issues of of sovereignty and so on that you know that that affect this. But it also puts China in the context of countries like the U.S. and France, you know, kind of who do also pursue people that they that they perceive as enemies on foreign soil. Yeah. Um, and I, that, wanna, I mean, that, with, with the U.S., it happens in Africa a lot. A lot. Well, let's let's kind of table the U.S. side for now, just because I want to get to that at the end of the show. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the reaction in Africa. And what's been so interesting is, in some ways, outside of the Kenya press or even the Nairobi-based press, there's been, you know, surprisingly little 
uh, considering that this was really a dramatic event in many respects, particularly in the China-Africa relationship. Let's get some details now for, uh, on, and, and you can listen to the tone of the coverage. This is a report from Kenya's NTV, which is one of the national broadcasters in Kenya. And they kind of detail, again, more of the explanation as to why the Chinese took action and what was motivating the Chinese to, to forcibly deport these, uh, these Taiwanese and Chinese. A statement from the spokesperson of the Chinese embassy sent this morning says the suspects most likely belong to a cross-border telecommunications fraud syndicate made up of groups that use communication equipment to rob their targets within China. The fraudsters make the victims believe that they have committed financial offenses with their banks, insurance companies or other financial institutions after which they extort money from them by disguising themselves as prosecutors or authorities. The group has been escaping the Chinese police dragnets by moving from one country to another, and they prefer countries which are not quite familiar with their operations, according to the Chinese spokesperson. The Chinese were arrested from seven different houses in Runda since last Sunday. Many others escaped. Kobus, what we heard there was really matter-of-fact, and that's been consistent with a lot of the coverage that I've been watching from the, the African media, in particular the Kenyan media. And in some ways, this goes to account for the fact that they're sticking very much to the Chinese line. In fact, I compared you know, a report from CCTV Africa with this NTV report, and, and they were almost similar. I mean, in terms of the emphasis that they gave both to the Chinese point of view, the talking points seemed to be right out of CCTV and Xinhua. And in some ways, I feel like, wow, this is the payoff for the Chinese of the massive media investment that they've made in Africa is not necessarily in terms of viewers. It's not necessarily in terms of money that they're making in the media market, but it's that their narrative kind of gets picked up in these highly sensitive stories. Yes, I think so. And also you see here what what the one China policy really means, you know, as it relates to Africa, because I think in a lot of ways, you know, kind of rejecting Taiwan and accepting China and, and, you know, kind of paying lip service to the one China policy is just a formality for a lot of African countries. It's, it's you know, kind of no skin off their nose. They frequently have very little to do with Taiwan anyway. Um, but so most of the time, it's almost an academic issue, I think, for, for most Africans. However, in cases like this, here you see how it actually works and what the, what you know kind of what what the implications are so part of the of the the rationale from the Kenyan authorities for for uh, for working with the Chinese authorities to to deport these people violently according to some accounts you know kind of some people are saying like these people were forced through tear gas and other kind of violent means to actually get on the plane um, is that there is one china and that you know, that, that, that uh, you know Kenya doesn't recognize Taiwan, um, so they don't count as citizens of a different place. They count as citizens of China because there is only one China. So you know, kind of, I think I think here you see, oh, okay, so this is why the Chinese, you know, Chinese, Chinese foreign policy insists on this point. Yeah. You know, it has very real, like, practical implica implications in lots of cases. Well, I have another theory that I'd like to run by you on this, and that. You know, African, most African governments and most African people struggle with the question of corruption. And, and I, you know, I would basically put any amount of money down that if we walk through the streets of Kinshasa, if we walk through the streets of Johannesburg, and, uh, or pick any country you want, and you said if your government had the opportunity to arrest the family members of political leaders who are known to be corrupt, who have billions or millions of dollars in Swiss and French and offshore accounts, and you could arrest them and bring them back to justice, what would you do? Or if you could arrest 
people who are hurting your people in the form of cybercrime, which obviously is an issue that affects everybody at some level, um, even for those people who may not even be that much connected to the to the internet, it's a cost on society when corruption kind of affects and that kind of crime affects. I have a feeling that a lot of people would be very sympathetic to that. And so it's been interesting to watch the reaction on our Facebook page and also on the Huffington Post where we publish our stories, how Westerners are outraged by this. Westerners have been kind of indignant about the Chinese kind of long arm reach that they've been engaging in. And yet the African answer to this that we've seen at least on our pages has been, well, listen, this is nothing different than what the United States does. And so I'm curious to see what you think, why there's been such a muted reaction. And do you think it's because the fact that corruption affects people differently depending where they are? Yes, I, I think so. Um, in, in the first place, I think the part of the muted reaction has to do with with a, a feeling that tai, ta, Taiwan-China issues is just they're just very far away. It's You're not going to even if story. yeah, it's a complicated story far away that has nothing to do with us. Um, and you know, so even if Kenyan authorities were involved, they're like, well, you know, it's some some kind of high level thing that doesn't really you know impact on us. Um, so I think that's part of it. And another part of it is is an inherent lack of sympathy for fraudsters. Because Africans are plagued by this kind of petty fraud and sometimes not so petty fraud on on a daily basis. I know many, many people who've had like, uh, you know, kind of $500 here, $1,000 there kind of finangled out of their accounts in different kinds of fraudulent ways. So there's a a, a real lack of sympathy for people who like, who, who kind of pester other people with you know kind of weird phone schemes because that's a part of life in Africa you you get called by weird people all the time and you know kind of trying to get you know identity numbers and so on out of you so it's there's a you know kind of like and people really hate that you know obviously so so I think that also you know kind of contributes to this feeling of like you know well you know kind of yeah. good luck to them kind of um, I think in the third place is also a, a kind of a awareness that Africa is a kind of a playground for foreign powers you know kind of so it's not by a long shot the first time that this kind of weird uh, weird kind of abduction slash extradition slash whatever you want to call it has happened in Africa and as you said it happens with US you know kind of concerns all the time but let's be fair here it's not even just you know western powers that do this in Africa uh, no, no. Paul Kagame of Rwanda was accused of assassinating in South Africa and in Burundi and other places, his foreign opponents of renditioning them as well. Uh, this, you know, so African governments have been doing this as well with, you know, within yes, forever, the continent yes. forever too. So this is really not new. So that may not be new. What may be new and an interesting wrinkle to the story, and again, it's another theory that I have had for a long time, and I think I'm the only one that has this right now, so um, that makes me a little worried. I'm either very smart or really stupid, but let's kind of, <laughs> let me just pick this theory up again. Whenever people talk about China colonizing Africa, I say, you know, I I reject that. You do too, in fact, Uh, because it doesn't look anything like colonialism. And when people say that, they undermine the real brutality and violence and the all-encompassing nature of what colonialism was. And the Chinese are not doing that. The Chinese don't themselves have a colonial tradition in their own history. They have a tributary tradition, and we've talked about this in many different, you know, instances on the show. You know, I live here in Vietnam, which for a thousand years was controlled by the Chinese. The word 
they were never colonized. It was never an imperial, uh, you know, agenda, but it was a tributary state. And that tributary state was when you have the Chinese emperor who's so much more powerful, he can then exact concessions and obedience and loyalty from much smaller powers with the threat of retaliation that can come in many different ways. And so I think it's very interesting with that in mind. And I was listening to France 24, the French international TV network, you know, full disclosure, my former employer. And there was a journalist uh, based in Nairobi named Julia Steers, who responded to a question about whether or not China has the influence necessary that to persuade the Kenyan government to take this kind of action that is potentially illegal under international law. And she put it in the context of the economic relationship that China has with Kenya. Well, it wouldn't be surprising given China or Beijing's longstanding relationship with Kenya. Beijing was one of the first foreign embassies to open here uh, just after Kenya's independence in the 1960s. And since then, the diplomatic relationship has only strengthened, particularly under the current president in the last 10 years. The two countries have signed over $5 billion of trade deals, and China has really committed to building infrastructure and even wildlife conservation projects here in Kenya. So particularly as Kenya has isolated itself from some Western partners, they've really looked to strengthen this relationship with China, and it seems like they'll do so even at uh, the risk of violating the rights of other foreign nationals here in Kenya. Cobus, there it is. That's the economic ties that bind in many ways. So, you know, for if you're, you know, Uru Kenyatta and you have a choice that's kind of presented to you from the Chinese that says, you know, we want to get these people back. Uh, yeah, it may not be entirely legal, but at the same time, you know, you have $5 billion of investment. You have a standard gauge railway that's being built by us. You are now a hub on the one belt, one road. And that could be in danger if you don't necessarily support us. And so this is where I feel the tributary relationship is starting to appear in places like Africa, where China is able to assert its influence against the sovereignty well-being of African countries because of the unequal financial relationship between the two sides. Give me your, you know, am I completely off the wall on this or is this a legitimate kind of framing of this tributary theory? It sounds, it sounds, uh, you know, kind of like it, it makes sense to me. Um, I think, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I think one, one question that, that can be asked is to which extent this is a kind of a, um, this is traceable, you know, through using the word tributary to this kind of ancient Chinese system and to which extent it's actually a kind of a grandchild of the spheres of influence situation that we saw during the Cold War, you know, kind of where the U.S. had certain kind of client regimes and, you know, the Soviets had certain client regimes and they groomed them and, and you know, kind of and financed, you know, stuff in, the, in those countries and then had some kind of payback for it. Um, you know, it seems to me that it might be a kind of a 21st century kind of merger between those two, those two models um you know um, and and we'll see it developed as to which extent you know kind of there is any kind of like a real rivalry you know developing between the u.s and, and china in the future um it might move more in that direction or it might not well, um, well let's put that, another that, example that out probably more off the wall than your theory actually. It, it might but let's i mean i'm and i'm sure there's a you know 
a China st- scholar at you know the, the LSE or at Tsinghua who's good listening to this and probably just you know shaking their head at my theory. But let's kind of push it forward a little bit into your neighborhood. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama has asked for visas several times to come to South Africa, and on many instances, uh, they they were just denied. Um, on all instances, actually, they were denied. Well, they were actually that's the, that's the thing. Actually, that's that's the, the point is that they weren't denied. They were just so for some reason the process just took so long that it just ran out of time. It's like, who you know, how could that possibly have happened? Oh, well, sometimes the systems are slow. It's that kind of situation, you know, kind of where it, it, the, the government, the South African government avoided giving an official denial and rather just dragged their feet until the, the, you know, until it kind of fell apart on its own. Clearly, you know, everyone thinks that that is through pressure from China. Yeah, of course, we know what happened. And, and so you take a country like Ghana, which is, you know, a tiny speck of a country that is smaller than most you know, Chinese cities. And if Ghana decides that it wants to, you know, vote contrary to Chinese interests, will it do that? And there is now data that's coming out from aid data, our good friends at aid data, who both Cobus and I think is, you know, quote unquote, controversial. Uh, We're not huge fans of aid data, uh, just in part because their methodology oftentimes is lacking. But at the same time, they came out with this report, which kind of showed that those African countries that vote consistent with the Chinese foreign policy at the United Nations tend to do better in terms of their financial aid. (laughs) So money is power here. And it's just very interesting how African sovereignty has the potential, if not already, uh, being chipped away by Chinese national interests. And, And I worry a little bit that, again, China's disproportionate economic relationship that Jacob Zuma himself said was unsustainable is coming to bear when we see these forcible deportations, when we see the Dalai Lama not being accepted into South Africa, when we see kind of countries that may want to vote contrary to the Chinese in bodies like the UN or the International War Crimes Tribunal or any multinational body. And they may be persuaded not to because of how much is at stake financially for them. Yes, yes. I mean, one thing I was wondering about about that data is, is you know, to, to which extent there's a there's a conflation. No, I, I'm not articulating this well. Um, like, what is what is the 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 instance of of a country that's a notable economic center and therefore an investment center in Africa? Um, you know, kind of actually, like, what, 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 what are the issues around which those that country would be voting against China in, you know, kind of in, in a multilateral institution? Like, it was it was difficult for me to to see to which extent they expose real causality and to which extent they just expose things running in parallel. You know, kind of without any real causality existing there. Um, I'm not saying this in, in any kind of like intelligible way. I'm sorry, but like there, there was a. I'd, I'd love to see that data unpacked a little bit more, and like and, and actually see the link between the two things proven. Okay, let me take a little bit less cynical view on this. So I gave. I started this by giving my my more skeptical view of kind of Chinese you know, encroachment on African sovereignty. And then I'll I'll kind of flip it now and take another view, which is that this is really the dividend that's being received from, you know, a decade and a half of massive diplomatic and financial engagement by the Chinese in Africa, where the West, for the most part, 
uh, has has kind of relegated Africa to a very low level priority, in, except for you know the global war on terror. You know, the, the, for the Obama administration, Africa has not been a priority. Uh, the French still confine most of their diplomatic action in Africa to France-Afrique. Uh, the British, for the most part, have not made Africa a priority. Um, and, and yet the Chinese now are reaping the fruits of those investments and that engagement of sending delegation after delegation after delegation of bringing, as we've heard in, in recent podcasts, you know, thousands of agricultural specialists going to China. You know, more students now study in China from Africa than any other country in the world. Uh, you know, billions of dollars in development money, in investment money, in infrastructure money coming from China to do this. And what what is born from this is a closer relationship. And that closer relationship brings benefits to the Chinese. So maybe it has nothing to do with, you know, tributary state. Maybe it has nothing to do with skepticism. It's just a realignment of the global order where people People like Kenyatta and Zuma are seeing that their interests are more aligned with the Chinese than they are with the West. And that has nothing to do with other than, you know, countries acting out of their own self-interest and that these leaders are doing it purely for their own strategic interest because they don't feel that the West offers the same kind of support that the Chinese do. So from time to time to give the Chinese a bone, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it comes down to essentially to soft power in the original sense in which Joseph Nye, you know, kind of coined it, which is not simply, essentially not not using this kind of power to lean on anyone to do to get them to do something, but rather to create a, a kind of a, a community where people just organically want what you want. You know, kind of you as a strong country, you just create a kind of a climate in which other weaker countries also want exactly what you want them to do. Um, and, and where you create a kind of a, a shared worldview where the same where where something looks the same to you and to your allies. Um, you know, and, and I think that is probably what's 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 starting to happen well, um, in, in China. It's in interesting Africa. you bring up the Nye theory only because, you know, the United States has often defined soft power. And, you know, Nye himself is a former Defense Department official. He's now at Harvard. And he came up with this theory at Harvard. And it's this idea that, you know, soft power is manifested through media, through pop culture, through ideas. And you've thought about this quite a bit because you say that the Chinese version of soft power in Africa is framed by an economic success story. It's framed by maybe fighting the same wars against corruption that Africans are fighting as well. So there's a kind of uh, an ideological symmetry that's there that the West is not keyed in on because those aren't our fights. It's fighting poverty and raising girls out of poverty and educating women and girls like the Chinese have done very, very successfully that in many ways represents a model for other emerging markets and other emerging countries. So in some ways, the Chinese model of development is in its own form uh, a way of soft power you know, diplomacy. Yes, I think so. I think so. so. And I think I think it's explicitly being framed that way by Beijing as well. Well, let's you you talked about earlier and we're going to close our discussion uh, on on renditions in the United States. And and I think this is very interesting because as I mentioned earlier in the program, on our Facebook groups, the Americans and the Westerners have been outraged by this, but a lot of Africans themselves have been bringing up the issue to saying, well, what's the difference between this and what the United States does? And the United States kind of frames it in, you know, military strategic issues, that we are getting people overseas who are a threat to national security and a threat to global stability. Uh, It's been proven repeatedly that a lot of the people that the United States renditioned during the early phases of the global war on terror um, were innocent. 
they were broken people after their experience in, in black sites in Romania, in Poland, in Thailand. Uh, they were beaten brutally. Uh, there was no legal recourse kind of, uh, you know, that made the United States accountable for the actions that it did. Uh, they would get people in the middle of the night, secret them off to, to, to other countries and, and beat the living, you know, daylights out of them. And so in, in, in many respects, in my theory is that what happened in Kenya and what the Chinese are doing all over the world, the framework for that was kind of established by the United States and these renditions, these extrajudicial, extra-legal types of, of detentions. And I think that Americans will probably take great offense at me saying this, but I think in many ways we pave the way for this to happen because we don't stand on a lot of moral ground to condemn the Chinese for all the things that they're doing in other parts of the world when we were doing it under just different contexts and a different guise. But at the end of the day... A rendition is a rendition is a rendition if you don't have an, a legitimate, transparent legal process that accompanies that. Now, the Chinese certainly don't have transparent legal processes that go with these renditions or these deportations, but the actual act of arresting somebody outside of your own jurisdiction and bringing them back to justice in your own country, whatever form that justice takes, um, is not something that I think that the United States and the West has an enormous amount of moral leverage to exert over the Chinese. No, and I mean, part of that moral leverage that, that does exist is uh, hinges on the, the difference between national security and, and crime prevention, right? Kind of like where, because, you know, some of the commentators have said, okay, no, but, but in the case of the U.S., this has to do with national security, not with simple prosecuting of criminals. Um, but I think that distinction isn't such a clear one in non-US, non-Western societies, because I think, you know, because in a, in a country like China or countries like in Africa, corruption is so pervasive that it becomes a kind of a national security issue. You know, kind of so I can see from a non-American perspective how there could be a case to be made that uh, for renditions as a form of of um, of of getting national security or ensuring national security through crime prevention you know kind of because because this kind of cyber crime is actually is, is so pervasive that it becomes a national security issue um so yeah i you know kind of long-winded way of saying i, I agree with yeah. you i think to a large extent and the u.s actually set a, a new set of standards you know kind of under, under during the the second bush administration that are, have now become standardized i think in in the world well and it goes even beyond the bush administration, I think if you live anywhere in the Western Hemisphere for the past, you know, 150, 200 years where the United States kind of considered the Latin America, South America, its official sphere of influence, um, there's been law enforcement actions, there have been covert actions taken by the CIA, there have been any number of, of enforcement actions by the United States in those countries that had nothing to do with national security, but whether it's going after drug cartels, or whether it's going after fugitives, but that have been extrajudicial and that have been outside of the host country's law enforcement mechanisms. Um, so that precedent is very well set. Uh, I'm not doing this to justify or to explain or to rationalize what the Chinese are doing. I just don't necessarily think that the United States, France, uh, and the Europeans as a whole have an enormous amount of leverage to stay, to stand on a soapbox and moralize down when I think this has been a part of their 
kind of enforcement, whether it's for security or criminal enforcement, for, for decades, if not centuries. So um, listen, Cobus, we could go on about this one for a very long time, but we want to hear what you think. And we're really, you know, recognizing the fact that this is a very sensitive issue. It's also an incredibly complicated issue with so many layers from the enforcement to the deportation to, you know, what Kenya's role in this, the China-Taiwan issue, how China is doing this now much more around the world. This is really the face of new China, which is a much more aggressive, assertive China. It's not one that is kind of, you know, containing itself within its own borders. It's it's engaging in these enforcement actions, not just in Africa, but also here in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. So what do you think? Does China have a right to do this? Do, do they have an ability? Oh, they have the ability, but do they have the right to go beyond their borders and snatch people that they feel are violating their laws or their interests? Uh, should governments cooperate with them? What do you think of Kenyatta's decision to allow this to happen? Uh, did Kenyatta get played by the Chinese? Is his sovereignty being su suffered and compromised by the Chinese here? Is this part of this deteriorating sovereignty in Africa that I've been kind of concerned about for a long time? Are we now starting to see it? Our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project is an excellent place to, to kind of sound off. We've been posting stories on this all week. We'll continue to be posting stories uh, probably for weeks and months ahead because, Kobus, I don't think this is the last time we're going to see this. No, there's, there's already there's another batch of, of mixed Chinese and Taiwanese people waiting trial in Kenya on another, another kind of phone fraud charge. So this is going to go on. This is going to go on. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page, um, and also I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well over at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Send us your questions, send us your comments and your thoughts through Twitter, through Facebook. Uh, we also send out a newsletter every Monday with the top four, five, maybe six China stories uh, related to Africa. It's a great way to kind of stay on top of what's going on if you're not really that kind of, you know, Facebook obsessed. Also, by the way, for our listeners in China, this email does make it through the, the Great Firewall. So it's a great way to kind of connect with us if you can't access Facebook. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast the best way, just go over to iTunes.com slash China Africa Podcast, or you can kind of download us on any of your favorite podcast apps. And we would be so really, really grateful. And we are grateful to those who've given us a comment and a rating as it helps other people find the show. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 